Chapter One of Fairylands of the South Seas. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Mike Vendetti. Chapter One: A Leisurely Approach. I don't remember precisely when it was that Nordoff and I first talked of this adventure. The idea had grown upon us, one might say, with the gradual splendor of a tropical sunrise. We were far removed from the tropics at the time. We were, in fact, in Paris and had behind us the greatest adventure we shall ever know. On the place de la Concorde, among the Champs d'Achilles, stood rank on rank of German cannons, silent enough now, but still menacing their muzzles, tilted skyward at that ominous slant one comes to know so well. For a month we had seen them so. Children perched astride them on sunny afternoons, rolling pebbles down their smooth black throats veterans in soiled and faded horizon blue, with the joy of this new quiet world bright on their faces, opening breech-blocks, examining mechanism with the skill of long use at such employment, with a kind of wondering hesitation in their movements, too, as though at any moment they expected those sinister monsters in the fantastic colors of Harlequin to spring into life again. Those were glorious days. Never again, I think, will there be such a happy time as that in Paris. The boulevards are crowded, the tables filled under every awning in front of the cafés, and yet there seemed to be a deep silence everywhere, a silence intensified by the faint rustling of autumn leaves and the tramping of innumerable feet. One heard the sound of voices, of laughter, of singing, the subdued, continuous rumble of traffic, but not a harsh cry not a discordant note. All the world seemed to be making holiday at the passing of a solemn, happy festival. But we had kept it with the others, Nordoff and I, and I have the memory of it now, to be enjoyed over and over again as the years pass. But there was danger that we might outstay the freshness of that period. We were anxious to avoid that for the sake of our memories, if for nothing else. While we were not yet free to order our movements as we chose, we pretended that we were, and so one rainy evening in the December following the armistice, we decided to call that chapter of existence closed, and to go forward with the making of new plans. For we meant to have further adventure of one kind or another, adventure in the sense of unexpected incident rather than hazardous activity. That had been a settled thing between us for a long time. We had no craving for excitement but turned to plans for uneventful wanderings, which we had sketched in broad outlines months before. They had been left of necessity vague, but now that any of them might be made realities, now that we had leisure and a reasonable hope of the fulfillment of plans, well, we had cause for a contentment which was something deeper than happiness. The best of it was that the close of the war found us with nothing to prevent our doing pretty much as we chose. We might have had houses or lands to anchor us, or promising careers to drag us back into the bewilderments of modern civilization. But fortunately or unfortunately, there were none of these things. The chance of war had given us a freedom far beyond anyone's desert. We had some misgivings about accepting so splendid a gift, which the event sometimes proves to be the most doubtful of benefits. Viewed in the light of our longings, however, our capacity for it seemed incalculable. 
And so, by degrees, we allowed our minds to turn to an old allurement, the South Pacific. It became irresistible the more we talked of it, longing as we then were for the solitude of islands. The objection to this choice was that the groups of islands which we meant to visit have been endowed with an atmosphere of pseudo-romance, displeasing to the fastidious mind. But there was not the slightest chance of our being pioneers wherever we might go. We could not hope to see with the eyes of the old explorers who first came upon these far-off places. We must expect great changes, but much as we might regret for the purposes of this adventure that we had not been born two hundred years earlier. Comfort was not wanting to our situation. Had we been contemporaries and fellow explorers with de Quiros and Cook or Bougainville, we should have missed the Great War. We came within view of Tahiti one windless February morning. Such a view as Pedro Fernandez de Quiros himself must have had more than three hundred years before. The sky to the west was still bright with stars, and but barely touched with the very ghost of light, giving it the appearance of a great water, with a few clouds, like islands, immeasurably distant. Half an hour later the islands themselves lay in full sunlight, jagged peaks falling away in steep ridges to the sea, against sheer walls still and shallow in upland valleys. One could see a few turns, but there was no other movement, no sound, nor any sign of a human habitation nothing to shatter the illusion of primitive loveliness. It was illusion, of course, but the reality was nothing like so disappointing as I had feared it would be. Outwardly, two hundred years of progress have wrought no great amount of havoc. There is a little port, a busy place on boat days, but when the steamer has emptied the town of her passengers, the silence flows down again from the hills. Off the main harbor front, through our fair streets lie empty to the eye for half hours at a time. Chinese merchants sit at the doorways of their shops waiting for trade. Now and then broad pools of sunlight flow over the gaily flower dresses of a group of native women, scarcely to be seen otherwise as they move slowly through tunnels of moist green gloom, or a small schooner, like a detail gifted with sudden mobility in a picture, will back away from shore cross a harbor bright with the reflections of clouds, and stand out to sea. In the stillness of the noon siesta, one hears at infrequent intervals the resounding thud of ripe fruits as they tear their way to the ground through barriers of foliage, and at night the melancholy thunder of the surf on the reef outside the harbor, and the slithering of bare feet in the moonlit streets. Coming from a populous exile, doubly attracted for that reason by the lure of unpeopled places, Nordoff and I sought here an indication of what we might find later elsewhere. The few thousand of natives, whites, orientals, half-castes, live in a charmed circle of lowland, fronting the sea, conscious of their mountains, no doubt, but the whites without curiosity, the orientals without desire, the natives without remembrance. There must have been a maze of trails in the old days leading down from the rich valleys. Now they are overgrown untraveled, lost. Since the old life is no more than a memory, one is glad for the desolation and grateful to the French lack of enterprise, which surely is the only way to account for it. 
No, we couldn't have chosen a better jumping-off place for our unpremeditated wanderings. We had the whole expanse of the Pacific before us, or better around us, and there was, as I have said, a harbor full of shipping, boats with pleasing names like the Curies, the Avora, the Porivavana, the Cayo, the Lien, and self-confident, sea-going aspect. Some tidy and smart, with new paint and rigging, others with decks warped and sides blistered, bottom foul with the accumulation of six months' cruise, reeking with the warm odor of copra. Boats newly arrived from remote islands with crowds of bare-legged natives on their decks, their eyes beaming with pleasure in anticipation of the delights of the great capital, outward bound to the Marquias, the Austrials, the Cooks, the low archipelago, despite the fact that it was the middle of the hurricane season. Among these latter, there was one whose name was like a friendly hail from Gloucester, or Portland, Maine, but it was not this which attracted me to her. For all its assurance of Yankee hospitality, she was off to the Patumas, the cloud of islands, and longing to go there, persisted in the face of a number of vague discouragements. There were no practical difficulties, easy enough to get passage by one schooner or another. Pamatu Copra is famous throughout the southern Pacific. There is a good deal of competition for it, boats racing one another for cargo to the richer islands. The discouragements weren't so vague either now that I think of them. They came from men kindly disposed, interested in the islands in their own way but their concerns were purely commercial. I heard a deal of talk about copra, in kilos, in tons, in shiploads. Its market value in Papiti, in San Francisco, in Marseille, until the stately trees which gave it lost for a time, their old significance. Talk, too, of coconut oil, and its richness in butterfat. Butterfat! There was a word to bring one back to a workaday world. To meet it at the outset of a long, dreamed-of journey was disheartening. It followed me with the shrill insistence of a creamery whistle, and I came very near, giving up my plans altogether. Nordoff did not change his. He said that it was silly, no doubt, but he didn't like the idea of wandering, however lonely, in a cloud of butterfat islands. Therefore, we said good-bye, having arranged for a rendezvous at a distant date, and set out on diverging paths. I ought to leave Crichton, the English planter, out of this story altogether. He doesn't belong in a commonplace record of travel such as this one set out to be. He had very little to do with the voyage of the Caleb S. Winship among the atolls, but when I think of that vessel he comes invariably into mind. I see him sitting on the cabin deck, with his freckled brown hands clasped about his knees, looking across a solitude of waters and in my mental concept of the low archipelago, he is always somewhere in the background, standing on the sun-stricken reef of a tiny atoll, his back to the sea, almost as much a part of the lonely picture as the sea itself. But one can't be wholly matter-of-fact in writing of these islands. They are not real in the ordinary sense, but belong, rather, to the realm of the imagination, and it is only in the imagination that you can conceive of your ever having been there, once you are back again in a well-plowed sea-track. As for the people, 
whether native or alien. In order to focus them in a world of reality, it is necessary to remember what they said or did, what they ate, what sort of clothing they wore. Otherwise, they elude you, just as the islands do. This point of view isn't perhaps commonly held among the few white men who know them. Captains of small schooners, managers of trading companies, resident agents, whose interest, as I have said, is in what they produce rather than what they are. As one old skipper of my acquaintance put it, in speaking of the atolls, take them by and large. They are as much alike as the reef points on that sail. Finley South Pacific Directory, a supposedly competent authority, bears him out in this. They are all of similar character, adding for emphasis, no doubt, and they exhibit very great sameness in their features. He does, however, make certain slight concessions to what may be his own private conception of their peculiar fascination. This vast collection of coral islands, one of the wonders of the Pacific, and later in his account of them, the native name Pumatu, signifies a cloud of islands, an expressive term but he doesn't forget that he is writing for practical-minded mariners, who want facts and not fancies, however truthful these may be to reality. Now there's Taikahu, one of them said to me before I had been out there. That's a small atoll, and, yeah, sort of square-like and so on. Some with passes and a good anchorage inside the lagoon. Others you got to lay outside and take your cargo off the reef, in a small boat. But to go back to Crichton, no one knew who he was or where he came from. The manager of the Inter-Island Trading Company had lived in Papiti for years and had never seen him until the day when he turned up at the waterfront trundling a wheelbarrow loaded with four crates of chickens and an odd lot of plantation tools and fishing tackle. Following him were two native boys carrying a weather-blackened sea chest and an old woman with an enormous roll of bedding tied loosely in a pandanus mat. That was about an hour before the schooner weighed anchor. He stacked his gear neatly on the beach and then went on board, asking for passage to Tanao. No, sir, the manager said in telling about it afterward. I never laid eyes on him until that moment, and I don't know anyone who had. Where's he been hiding himself, and why, in the name of common sense, does he want to go to Tanao? There's no copra or pearl shell there. Not enough, anyway, to make it worth a man's while going after it. Tino, the supercargo, was equally puzzled. I know Tanau from the sea, he said. Passed it once coming down from the Marquesas. When I was supercargo of the Tyre Tahiti, we were blown out of our course by a young hurricane. Didn't land. There's no one on the godforsaken place. Now here's this Englishman, or Dane, or Norwegian, whatever he is asking to be set down there with four crates of chickens with an old Kanaka woman for company. He shook his head with a give-it-up expression, adding a moment later, Well, you meet some queer people down in this part of the world. I don't believe in asking them their business, but it beats me sometimes trying to figure out what their business is. He was not able to figure it out in this case. The old woman was talkative, but the information he gathered from her only stimulated his curiosity the more. She owned Tanau, an atom of an atoll, miles out of the beaten track, even of the Pamotu schooners. There had never been more than a score of people living on it, he said, and now there was no one. 
Crichton had taken a long lease on it, and was going out there, as he told me afterward, to do my writing and thinking undisturbed. I didn't know this until later, however, when I first heard him spoken of we were only a few hours out from Papiti. We had left the harbor with a light breeze, but at four in the afternoon the schooner was lying about fifteen miles offshore, lazy jacks flapping against idle sails with a mellow, crusty sound. After a good deal of fretting at the fickleness of land breezes, talk had turned to Crichton. He was a forward somewhere, looking after his chickens. He didn't pay much attention then to what was being said, for I had just had one of those moments which come rarely enough in a lifetime, but which make up for all the arid stretches of experience. They give no forewarning. There comes a flood of happiness, which brings tears to the eyes. The sense of it is so keen. The sad part of it is that one refuses to accept it as a moment. You say, by Jove, I'm not going to let this pass. And it has gone, as unaccountably as it came, half lost through foreboding of its end. One prepares for it unknowingly, I suppose, through months, sometimes years, of longing for something remote and beautiful, such as these islands, for example. And when you have your islands, the moment comes, sooner or later, and you see them in the light which never was, as the saying goes, but which is the light of truth for all that. Brief as it is, no one can say that the reward is an ample, and it leaves an afterglow in the memory, tempting regret, fading very slowly, which one never wholly loses, since it takes on the color of memory itself, becoming a part of that dim world of worthwhile illusions all of which has very little to do with what was passing aboard the Caleb S. Winship, except that I was prevented from taking an immediate interest in my fellow passengers. But this being my first near view of a Polynesian trading schooner, the scene on deck had all the charm of the unusual. Her skipper was a Pumotian, a former pearl-diver, and the sailors, six of them, including the mate, Tahitian boys, in addition to these were Crichton, the planter, the supercargo, master of three major languages and a half-dozen Polynesian dialects, the manager of the Inter-Ireland Trading Company, William, the engineer, Oro, the cabin boy, a Chinese cook, and two Chinese storekeepers, evidence of the leisurely, persistent Oriental invasion of French Polynesia, thirty native passengers, a horse in an improved stall amidships, a monkey perched in the mainmast rigging, Christian's four crates of chickens and five pigs. In addition to the passengers and livestock, we were carrying out a cargo of lumber, corrugated iron, flour, rice, sugar, canned goods, clothing, and dry goods. Each of the native passengers brought with him as much dunnage as an Englishman carries when he goes traveling, and his food for the voyage. Limes, oranges, bananas, breadfruit, mangoes, canned meat. With all of this, a two-month supply of gasoline for the engines, and fresh water and green coconuts for the passengers and crew. We made a snug fit. Even the space under the patient little native horse was used to stow his fodder for the long journey. The women, with one exception, were barefooted, bareheaded, but otherwise conventionally dressed according to European or American standards. This, I suppose, is an outrageous betrayal of a trade secret if one may say that writers of South Sea narratives belong to a trade. Those seriously interested in the islands have, of course, known the truth about them for years, 
but I believe it is still a popular misconception that the women who inhabit them, no one seems to be interested in the men, are even to this day half-savage, unself-conscious creatures who display attention of the others. And in a moment men, women, and children had gathered round, laughing and shouting, throwing bits of coconut shell, mango seeds, banana skins, faster than the monkey could catch them. The spontaneity of the merriment did one's heart good. Even the old men and women laughed, not in the indulgent manner of parents or grandparents, but as heartily as the children themselves, unconscious of the uproar. One of the Chinese merchants was lying on a thin mattress against the cabin skylight. Although he was sound asleep, his teeth were bare in a grin of ghastly suavity, and his left eye was partly open, giving him an air of constant watchfulness. He was dreaming, I suppose, of copra, of pearl shell, in kilos, tons, shiploads, of its market value in Papiti, in San Francisco, in Marseilles, etc. Well, the whites get their share of these commodities, and the Chinamen theirs, but the natives have a commodity of laughter, which is vastly more precious, and as long as they do have it, one need not feel very sorry for them. Dusk gathered rapidly while I was thinking of these things. Heavy clouds hung over Tahiti and Moria, clinging about the shoulders of the mountains, whose peaks rising above them were still faintly visible against the somber glory of the sky. They seemed islands of sheer fancy, looked at from the sea. It would have been worth all that one could give to have seen them as de Quero saw them, or Cook, or the early missionaries, to have added to one's own sense of their majesty, the solemn and more childlike awe of the old explorers, born of their feeling of utter isolation from their kind, with the presence of the unknown on every hand. It is this feeling of awe rarely to be known by travelers in these modern days, which pervades many of the old tales of wanderings in remote places, which one senses in looking at old sketches made from the decks of ships, of the shores of heathen lands. The wind freshened, then came a deluge of cold water, blotting out the rugged outlines against the sky. When it had passed, it was deep night. The forward deck was a huddle of shelters made of mats and bits of canvas, but these were being taken down now that the rain had stopped. I saw an old woman sitting near the companionway, her head in clear relief against a shaft of yellow light. She was wet through, and the mild misfortune broke the ice between us, if one may use a metaphor very inept for the tropics. With her face half in shadow, she reminded me of a typical Anglo-Saxon grandmother although no grandmother of my acquaintance would have sat unperturbed through that squall and indifferent to her wet clothing afterward. She didn't appear to mind it in the least, and now that it was over, fished a paper of tobacco and a strip of pandulus leaf out of the bundle on which she was sitting. She rolled a pinch of tobacco in the leaf, twisting it into a tight corkscrew, and lit it at the first attempt. Then she began talking in a deep, resonant voice, and by a simplicity and an extraordinary lucidity of gesture, conveyed the greater part of her meaning even to an alien like myself. It was not, alas, a typical accomplishment. I have not since found others similarly gifted. She was Crichton's landlady, the owner of Tanau. Poupier, she called him, because of his fair hair. I couldn't make out what she was driving at for a little while, 
I understood at last that she wanted to know about his family, where his father was, and his mother. I suppose she thought I must know him being a white man. They have queer ideas of the size of our world. He was young. He must have people somewhere. She, too, couldn't understand his wanting to go to Tanao, and I gathered from her perplexity that he hadn't confided his purposes to her to any extent. I couldn't enlighten her, of course, and at length, realizing this, she wrapped herself in her mat to preserve the damp warmth of her body, and dozed off to sleep. I went below for a blanket and some dry clothing, for the night air was uncomfortably cool after the rain. The cabin floor was strewn with sleeping forms. Three children were curled up in a corner like puppies in a box of sawdust. Little brown babies lay snugly bedded on bundles of clothing, the mothers themselves sleeping in the careless, trustful attitudes of children. The light from a swinging lamp threw leaping shadows on the walls, flowed smoothly over brown arms and legs, was caught in faint gleams in masses of loose black hair. And, to complete the picture and make it wholly true to fact, cockroaches of the enormous winged variety ran with incredible speed over the oilcloth of the cabin table, or made sudden flying sallies out of dark corners to the food lockers and back again. On deck, no one was awake except Maui at the wheel. There was very little unoccupied space, but I found a strip against the engine-room ventilator, where I could stretch out at full length. By that time, the moon was up, and it was almost as light as day. I was not at all sleepy, and my thoughts went forward to the Pamatos, the cloud of islands. We ought to be making our first landfall within thirty-six hours. I didn't go beyond that in anticipation, although in the mind's eye I had seen them for months, first one island and then another. I had pictured them at dawn, rising out of the sea against a far horizon, or at night, under the wan light of stars lonely beyond one's happiest dreams of isolation, unspoiled, unchanged, because of their very remoteness. Well, I was soon to know whether or not they fulfilled my hopeful expectations. Someone came aft, walking along the rail in his bare feet. It was Oro, the cabin boy, who was taken with an enviable kind of madness at the full of the moon. He looked carefully around to make sure that everyone was asleep then stood clasping and unclasping his hands in ecstasy, carrying on a one-sided conversation in a confidential undertone. Now and then he would smile, and straightway become serious again, gazing with rapt, listening attention at the world of pure light, nodding his head at intervals in vigorous confirmation of some occult confidence. At length his figure receded, blurred, took on the quality of the moonlight, and I saw him no more. End of chapter 1